The sermon text for today is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1576. Listen as I read God's word. Love for enemies. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And you may have noticed uh, we've been in a sermon series through the book of Philippians over these last number of months, and you may have noticed that the message text for this morning is not from the book of Philippians. We don't do this very often, uh, but there are times where we think it's important to take a break from something that we had planned to talk about, which was the book of Philippians, and instead to talk about something that is maybe a little bit more pressing or urgent for us. As you're all aware, uh, about a month ago, uh, a Supreme Court document was leaked indicating the majority opinion to overturn the uh, court's decision made back in the 70s uh, of Roe versus Wade, which established the constitutional precedent for abortion. Of course, this decision has not been finally handed down uh, to us. It's not official yet, and yet it's been uh, a significant flashpoint in our culture broadly. Uh, people are talking about it. It's out there. Everyone's thinking about it. And so uh, we decided it would be uh, prudent for us to take some time here on a Sunday and just talk about that together. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about life, human dignity, and the way of Jesus. Part of why I think it's important for us to think about things like this is because we are all being discipled in how we think about abortion from somewhere. Every conversation that we have with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, every YouTube video we watch, every news article that we read, every news reel that we watch, every TikTok, every Instagram, all of those spaces, all those uh, sources of information, those are influencing the way that we would think about a subject like this. We are all being discipled 
and shaped in our thinking about how we uh, think about abortion. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we believe that it's essential for us to have a way of thinking about this that is grounded in scripture, not only to affirm uh, what the Bible teaches about uh, sort of uh, just the morality of it, but also what kind of people do we need to be as we have conversations about this? What kind of church do we need to be? What, what, what does that conversation need to look like? And the Bible tells us not only just about the morality of it, but it tells us what kind of people we need to be as we have uh, really important, really complex, uh, really difficult conversations about something like this. So we're all being discipled in how we think about abortion. And unfortunately, uh, the loudest voices are never the most thoughtful. Right? The loudest voices are never the most nuanced. The loudest voices that are screaming for our attention are never the most wise. And I think we all know the reason for that, and that's because outrage sells. Media outlets, especially ones that have a 24-hour news cycle, they are for-profit businesses. And they make money when we are outraged. They make money when we become so angry that we lean in to what they say and the solutions that they offer us. And so I think that as followers of Jesus, uh, we need to be the ones to set the tone for this conversation on the subject of abortion. We have to be a church that says we refuse to sort of circle the drain of culture wars and political arguments. We have to choose to talk about this in better, helpful ways. And that's what I want to do here today is just kind of uh, spend a little bit of time setting a little bit of a framework for this. As we talk about matters of life and human dignity, uh, I think we, we have to recognize uh, on the front end of this that our public witness will rise or fall based on how we have these conversations. We have to recognize that uh, our, our credibility as individual people and our credibility as a church will rise or fall based on the kind of people we are and how we talk about these things, the, the tone and the disposition and the language, all of that matters. Our public witness is at stake in things like this, and as we've said before, uh, we must be a church that values both conviction of what scripture teaches as well as compassion. We must be a church that is characterized by convictional kindness, a church that practices civility and grace in the midst of things that are very difficult and very polarizing and very divisive, we have to be people of both civility and grace. And so the main question I wanna sort of ponder with you this morning is this, how do we maintain a faithful, distinctly Christian witness today? How do we do that? How do we maintain a faithful, distinctly Christian public witness? And before we talk about that, I wanna, I wanna pray. We need to pray. So would you join me? You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. God, this morning we thank you that you are a wise and generous creator. We thank you, Lord, that there is not a molecule in the world you created that you don't intimately know. There's not a person that you don't intimately know. God, we ask that as we endeavor on a conversation about a subject that is so positioned to be a point of contention and division, Lord, that you would give us grace. Lord, give us humility, give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that there would be nothing that comes out of my mouth today that is not true, that is not good, that is not right. Lord, we desire to follow your ways in all things. And so God, we pray right now for the presence of your Holy Spirit to be present and working among us. Help us now, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So how do we maintain a faithful, distinctly Christian public witness? I'm gonna suggest a couple different ways that we do this. Uh, number one is uh, we must see abortion for what it is. If you've been around Elmwood, uh, you know that we are a church that is unapologetically pro-life, meaning that we believe that life begins at the moment of conception and that at every point of the development of that embryo until the point of birth, until the point of natural death, uh, that, that is a human being. That is a human life. And that to end the life of that human being is to kill a human being that is created in the image of God. And so we are unapologetic in our belief about that. We are pro-life. And I also want to provide a little bit more definition and nuance to what it means that we're pro-life. Because there are different ways of being pro-life. I'm sure that we've all seen uh, different ways of being pro-life. One, one way of being pro-life essentially takes the subject of abortion and separates it and treats it as a standalone, autonomous issue that's completely disconnected from anything else. And I would suggest that this way of viewing abortion is overly simplistic and doesn't really match with life and our experience in the real world. There's a different way of being pro-life, and that is a way that recognizes that abortion is a matter of life and human dignity that is deeply interwoven with and influenced by other factors. So in other words, abortion is never a standalone issue. That every single woman who would go make the decision to have an abortion never makes that decision in a vacuum. But there are numerous, sometimes dozens of other factors that would contribute to a woman's decision to have an abortion. Something, uh, factors like housing. Does she have stable housing? Does she have affordable housing? What's her living situation like? What's her uh, childcare situation like? Does she have friends? Does she have family who can help shoulder the weight of caring for a child? Or is she all alone? Does she have access to affordable, reasonable healthcare? What's the family structure like? Is she a single mom? Is she a single parent? 
Does she already have two, three, four other children and this is going to be a fourth, a fifth child? Does she have a family that is tight-knit? Does she have a group of people that live close to her, that care about her, that deeply are willing to invest in her and shoulder the weight of this or is she doing it by herself? There's other factors like uh, culture. There's other factors like relational pressures. Does the man who got her pregnant, is he pressuring her to have an abortion because he doesn't want to man up and take responsibility? Are there other relational pressures in her life to, to try and cover it up and to push it aside and to make sure no one knows that she's pregnant? Things like uh, finances, her vocational, her, her employment situation. And of course, we could name many, many other factors that go into a woman's decision to have an abortion. And I guess the point is that a woman never makes the decision to have an abortion isolated from all those other factors. Those all contribute something to her desire or her decision to have an abortion. It's never made in a vacuum. And so I think we have to uh, begin by recognizing, we have to see abortion for what it is, that it is a matter of life and human dignity, and it's deeply interwoven with and influenced by other factors. I think we need to see something of the messiness and the complexity of it. And I want to make this really, really clear, okay? Because now is the point where there could be lots of confusion and I may get lots of angry emails saying I said something that I wasn't saying, okay? So let me just be very clear about what I am saying here. Viewing abortion in relationship to these other factors does not relativize the morality of it. Okay, D does that make sense? So in other words, a woman who is in a situation where she says, you know, I, I, you know my housing situation is a mess, I don't have a job, and I find out I'm pregnant. Those other factors are a real factor, a real thing that she's considering that goes into that decision-making process to have an abortion, but we don't say, well, you know, your situation's kind of hard, so we're just gonna let you have a pass. Those other factors don't relativize the morality of taking a human life. They don't create an excuse for that. And secondly, I think we have to recognize that viewing abortion related to these other factors, it doesn't reduce the importance of it. Recognizing that there are all these other factors that influence a woman's decision to, to have an abortion in the first place, that doesn't lessen the importance of abortion. You know, there's lots of things, um, some of those other factors are, um, their preferences. Okay, so think of healthcare. There's people that would want to say, you know, I want, I want individual, private healthcare, that, that's the system that I want to see in our country. There's other people that would say, I want Obamacare, I want state insurance, I want, you know, and we can, we can have disagreements on policy. Those are preferences. And those things, those, those policy preference decisions that we would hold, those things are not on the same moral plane as the decision to take human life, okay? So those things influence, they, they uh, are a part of a woman's decision-making process, but it does not relativize the morality of it, and it does not mean that we care uh, less about abortion. Viewing all of those other factors doesn't mean we care less about abortion, but it will mean that we care about more than only abortion. So we have to begin by seeing abortion for what it is, and that's central to maintaining a faithful, distinctly Christian public witness. Secondly, we must choose heartbreak over outrage. We must choose a posture of heartbreak over a response of outrage. And I'll list uh, just a handful of reasons why I think that this is important. Uh, number one is that outrage comes naturally. I don't know if you've noticed this. 
Everybody is outraged about everything all the time. And it's exhausting and we're all miserable because of it. Okay, outrage comes naturally. Outrage is the path of least resistance. Outrage is the easy thing to do. It doesn't take a work of God in your life to make you an outraged person. What does require a supernatural act of God in our lives is to be filled with compassion, to be filled with mercy, to be filled with forgiveness at abortion because it's the taking of a human life. You don't need the work of God in your life to be an outraged person. That's our default. So we have to choose heartbreak because default is easy. Default, the outrage is what we want to do. So we have to choose to be people of heartbreak. The second is that when we choose outrage, we may win the battle and lose the war, culturally speaking. We may be able to gain, sort of drum up enough political momentum that we would be able to do things like, you know, get abortion illegalized, you know, banned or make it illegal, things like this. Uh, we may generate enough outrage in order to achieve those political legislative ends. And what may happen is that we may, by doing that from a position of outrage, trying to get people to understand just how wrong this is, just how bad this is, you have to get out and vote, we have to change this, we have to fix this. When we choose that posture of outrage, we may be able to legislate our morality and at the very same time, we will completely lose all credibility with the culture around us. And so we can take the short-term victory of making abortion illegal and we can lose the long-term battle of having any credibility in the eyes of the people that we are trying to reach with the good news about Jesus. And so it's possible that if we choose outrage, we can win the battle and lose the war, culturally speaking. Uh, the third reason I think it's important for us to, to choose this posture of heartbreak is because the statistics about abortion are indeed heartbreaking. I'm gonna just read uh, a brief paragraph from this book. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. Great book, by the way. And then he says this. In 2018, abortion was a leading cause of death worldwide with 42 million victims. That's roughly seven holocausts in a single year more than one victim per second. In Iceland, the abortion rate for children diagnosed with Down syndrome approaches 100%. In the United States, 90% of pre-born humans diagnosed with Downs are terminated. In New York City, more black image bearers are aborted than born. In Asia, widespread sex-selective abortions have led to as many as 160 million missing women more than the entire female population of the United States. In addition to this, we also know that abortion clinics are targeted in certain kinds of communities. More than 70% of abortion clinics are in poor communities. More than 60% of abortion clinics are in predominantly black communities. And so taking all of this together, and there's you know, many more you know, statistics, things we could say about it, but those things are all heartbreaking. Another reason I think we need to choose a posture of heartbreak over outrage is very simply that women will never find hope at Planned Parenthood. 
when the church chooses to be outraged, when the church chooses to be angry about abortion, and that's the way that we sometimes come across when we talk about things like this. When the church chooses to be outraged and angry, women who are considering abortion right now, this moment, what they will come to believe is they will hear the church saying, people like you don't belong here. When the church is angry, visibly agitated about abortion, we tell women who have had abortions, who bear the scars of abortion, people like you don't belong here. The reality is that the church is the only place in the world where women can find hope and healing and forgiveness in the face of abortion. And so often the way that the church has talked about abortion has led women to believe that this is the unforgivable sin, that you are not welcome here if you would even consider this, let alone if you've had one. Responding with outrage is only going to drive women further away from the only place where they can find hope and healing in the face of abortion. And friends, it should ruin us that there are women who trust Planned Parenthood more than they trust the church. We should grieve and lament that there are women who believe Planned Parenthood cares more about them than the church does. And so often that's because of the way that the church has engaged in the conversation has communicated those things. After saying all these things about why we should choose heartbreak instead of outrage, I'm gonna tell you now why you should be outraged. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be outraged at things that go against God's created design. We ought to be righteously angry and outraged when we see human lives that are extinguished through abortion. We ought to be righteously outraged. And I just wanna make this really clear that there is a huge difference between someone who is righteously angry and someone who's just plain angry. Massive difference. People who are just outraged, they care about issues. Abortion to them is one thing in a political party's, what do you call that thing? Uh, the platform. It's one thing in a political platform. It's one thing on a voter guide. People who are just plain outraged, they care about issues. People who are righteously outraged are heartbroken over people. And there's a massive difference between those two things. And so I think we, on the one hand, there's a certain kind of outrage that we must avoid at all costs. And that's just being outraged and angry because we don't like it. We have to avoid that. And at the same time, outrage and heartbreak, those are not mutually exclusive. We ought to be people who are deeply outraged when things like this happen and people who also respond with compassion and heartbreak and mercy. And so we must choose heartbreak over outrage. Lastly, we must live as the counterformed community of Jesus. This is how we as a church family and as individuals will maintain a faithful and distinctly Christian public witness is we must live as a counterformed community. We must live by a, as a community of people 
who were shaped by an entirely different set of values, an entirely different set of beliefs that will then make us into a distinct kind of people. So we must be people who live as members of this countercultural reality of the kingdom of God and be shaped by the value system of the kingdom of God. And as we do, we'll live as this counterformed community of Jesus. The verses you heard read from the book of Luke, uh, they show us a little bit about what this looks like to actually live this counterformed community life. And what we see is that in the face of cultural opposition, we love our enemies. That's what Jesus tells us. Listen to verse 27. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So Jesus tells us how we are to respond when we experience cultural opposition. When we experience cultural pressure, what do we do? We love our enemies. And Jesus tells us, you will be hated. You will be mistreated. You will be taken advantage of. People will call down curses on you. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And Jesus tells us exactly what kind of people we need to be. Because I think we all know this to be true, that when we choose to value human life, that puts a target on our back, culturally speaking. When we choose to be not just pro-life in the womb, but holistically pro-life, that's going to cost us politically. That's going to cost us culturally. And Jesus tells us when we experience that opposition, exactly what kind of people we must be. We must be the kind of people who love our enemies, and it's because God first loved his. We love our enemies because God first loved his. Listen to verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. That is, you'll bear a family resemblance to your Heavenly Father because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. God has shown mercy to every single one of us here who is a follower of Jesus. We were dead in our sins. We were living lives apart from God. We were living lives that were in active rebellion against him and his created design. We were choosing to do what was right in our own eyes and the mercy of God interrupted our lives. The forgiveness of God and the grace of God interrupted our lives. We have experienced that. We have received that mercy and so the response that we have is we extend that same mercy to others. We love our enemies. So this is part of what it looks like to live as this counterformed community of Jesus. Another way it looks is that we embody and extend the mercy of God to women who bear the scars of abortion. I'll tell you why I've framed it this way. I framed this in a very compassionate way uh, because I was recently at a conference and there was a woman there named Amanda and Amanda was one of the speakers and she's a woman who works with New Life Family Services, which is one of the places, one of the ministries that we as a church family support. Um, We love the work they do. They provide care for women who are considering abortion. They provide post-abortive counseling and care for women. They provide resources to women who uh, are under-resourced and need help uh, getting supplies to help raise their children. 
So they do all this work, and she is someone who works with these women as an abortion counselor. That's what she does for a living. And she's done this for many years. And one of the things that she shared at the conference was she says, you know, I've yet to meet a woman who wanted to have an abortion. Think about that. She's been working with hundreds of women over the course of years, and she says, I've never met a woman who wanted to have an abortion. Women come to New Life Family Services because they believe there is no other option. Women find themselves at Planned Parenthood not because they wake up one day and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill my baby today. They wake up in the morning and go to, to Planned Parenthood because they believe there is no other options. They look at the situation, their economics, their finances, their vocation, their family. They look at all of those circumstances and they truly believe this is the only option I have. And this is why I think we have to, as we think about women who are in the process of having an abortion or women who have had abortions, we have to look at the situation and recognize that virtually nobody wants to have an abortion. And if we set up abortion just as this sort of standalone issue over here, then we, we force people into the question, well, are you for killing babies or not? And life on the ground is far more complex than that. And that's not the, the experience of the women who make that decision. And so we have to view this, we have to view these women through the lens of compassion. And that's why I'm convinced that for us to maintain this witness, we have to embody and extend the mercy of God to women who bear the scars of abortion. I'll tell you what, I, I, I've been thinking this week and, and sort of dreaming about what do I want to be true about Elmwood? And this is my dream for Elmwood, is that there would be stories. They may not be public because of the sensitive nature of it, but it'd be my dream that we would have stories in Elmwood from women who say, you know, I came to Elmwood as someone who had an abortion and I was absolutely certain that I was going to be shunned. I was absolutely certain that if anyone ever found out about this, that would be the end of it for me. They would never welcome me, they would never love me. I would be treated as a second-class citizen at best. And yet what I found when I came to Elmwood was a group of people who embraced me, a group of people who welcomed me and loved me despite maybe the decision that I made in the past, despite the decision that I may be in the process of making. This church family loved me in spite of that. I would love for there to be stories of women who come to Elmwood who say, you know, I came to Elmwood and I lived under the mountain of shame and guilt and regret for having an abortion. And there were nights I laid awake and I wondered, what would he or she have been like? What kind of experiences would we have had as a family? What's our world missing because this child is not here? And I came and I found a group of people when I was living under the weight of all of that shame and guilt for a decision that I can never take back. I came here and what I found was a group of people who said, we will not let you shoulder this alone. We will not let you carry this alone. We will bear your burdens with you and bear your burdens for you. We will love you and we will care for you no matter what. And we will remind you 
that your identity is not bound up in whether you've had an abortion or not. If you're a follower of Jesus, your identity is firmly rooted, it's solid, it's set in him, not in those things that you have done in the past. It's my dream that there would be women, there would be stories of women who come to Elmwood and they say, I was this close to having an abortion. I was this close. And I don't even know why I came. Something inside of me knew it wasn't right, but I was going to do it anyways. And maybe just sort of as a Hail Mary prayer to God, I'm going to come to church. And what I found was a group of people who said, you are not in this alone. And whatever we have to do to care for you, to love you, we will do that. Whatever financial costs that takes on us, we will support you. You don't have to make a decision to have an abortion. It's by dream that our church family would have stories like this. And there may be some that I'm not aware of. But friends, this is, I believe, the kind of church that we, that we need to be. I think that Banning abortion through legislation is a pitifully small goal. It's not unimportant. But what a small thing to hope for. What a small thing to dream for is that it's illegal. Our vision as a church cannot be to ban abortion, but to make it unnecessary. And so what that means is that whether Roe stands or is overturned, it doesn't make any difference for how we live. If Rose overturned tomorrow, we're still gonna love women well. We're still going to honor women and by our actions demonstrate that their lives have dignity and so does the life of their child. Whether that's inside of them or outside of them, we will still continue to live that way. So it doesn't matter if Rose overturned or not. We're still gonna love women in the same kind of way and provide dignity and honor for the women in our church family. And so in the, in the end, of, it doesn't really matter if Rose overturned or not. As we come to the communion table today, I want to, uh, I want to just encourage you. And this is an encouragement that is for all of us, but especially for those uh, you know, in, a, in a room this size, statistically, there's more than one woman who's had an abortion already, okay? Statistically speaking, that may or may not be true, but in a room this size, there are, statistically speaking, more than one woman who's already had an abortion and probably more who have thought about it. And so my encouragement for those women who have made that decision as well as for the rest of us, uh, his mercy is enough. For all of the past sins, whether that includes abortion or not, his mercy is enough. And for every single one of us, those past sins, those present sins, all of those sins that we will commit in the future, our sin is absorbed like a drop of water in the ocean of God's mercy. And so there's good news. 
we come to the communion table and we see that God desires to pour out his mercy on us. None of us here can say that we've done anything to earn God's favor. All of us are in the exact same position of being dead in our sin until God miraculously steps in and makes us alive. Abortion doesn't change that. And so we come to the communion table and we receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ which reminds us, your life is valuable. It reminds us that despite anything you may have done in the past, there is forgiveness and there can be healing in Jesus. And so that's true for women who are here who maybe have had an abortion. That's true for all of us in all of our sin. And so we get to come to the communion table and celebrate the work of Christ on our behalf. I want to invite you to take a moment of silence for confession and reflection as we come to the communion table today. Our most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you, O oh God, in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. We've sinned against you, our creator, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, God, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, God, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. Help us, God, amend what we are. Change us. And direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.